We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 tonight. Um, We're going to take a little break from Nehemiah. And we're going to look tonight at something from the life of Jesus as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Sometimes um, God does that. You know, he kind of lays things on my heart as I've been thinking about how we're going to prepare ourselves for this. And, you know, my normal... My normal mode would just to be to continue on in that series that God has given us, but I really felt like the Lord wanted us to look at this passage tonight and really kind of unpack this idea of what it means to be great in God's kingdom. Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so tonight, we're going to just take the next few minutes and, and really see in this passage that there, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great in the kingdom of God, but we need to do so in a way that, that honors and glorifies God and a way that, that challenges us in our everyday lives. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Maybe some of you in this room have, have thought this way or lived out this in your own life. Um, I, was, I grew up in Atlanta, and I grew up a baseball guy, so uh, maybe this illustration is lost if you're not a baseball fan. But here you are, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and you're down to the last strike. And the hometown hero has one chance left to win the game. Down by one run and one on, and his status can be cemented with a home run right here and right now. And here's the pitch and the swing. And it's a swing and a miss, and everybody goes home disappointed. That is not the way that played out in my backyard with my tennis ball and my bat day after day. Right? No, no, the local hero, what does he always do? He always smacks a home run over the fence, and the Braves always win another World Series. I reckon there are countless trophies filling the case of the imaginary Braves, thanks to personally my legendary efforts in the backyard growing up. Which is good, because they didn't fill it up in real life. And why is it, though? I mean, why is it that, that those imaginary things never end in disappointment and in loss? Because deep down, in all of us, there is a desire to be great or a desire to do something that matters. Whether it we pursue a career in sports, take up the mantle of mom and dad, ascend the ranks at work, or volunteer in our community, we want to do something that matters. We want to do something that leaves an impact on the lives of other people around us. 
Look around in our world today and you will see people consumed with greatness and with consumed with becoming great every day. And they scrabble for whatever they think it is that they need to make that happen. They, they grind away at sharpening their skills in order to gain that needed advantage so they can be great. So they can ascend and look down on other people. And here in Mark chapter 10, we learn something about the disciples. Jesus' disciples longed to be great. The greatness of the kingdom of God filled their hearts and filled their eyes and their deepest desires. And with that desire comes the teaching that we need. And that is how to be great in the kingdom of God. Because we can accomplish great things for God. And we, more than that, can be considered great by God's standards if we do so in his way. The path to true lasting greatness in God's kingdom is paved through selfless service of others for the glory of God. There's a lot of ideas about what what it means to be great. There's even a lot of ideas in our own hearts of what it means to achieve greatness or to have an impact or to make a difference. We, we, We whether it be just personal accomplishments or some milestone we think we have to achieve in order for us to be considered okay or to be great in God's eyes, or even sometimes we think, I just like to be acceptable. But God tells us we can be great, and we can enjoy that greatness in his kingdom if we do so in a way that honors and obeys him. And so here... In this passage, you see two different things. First, in verses 35 through 40, you see the great request that's brought to Jesus by two of his closest disciples. And it's brought, though, in a way that that shows some incredible self-focus. Now, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about himself and about the kingdom of God. I mean, can you imagine what these guys were able to enjoy? I mean, they spent three three and a half years with the God-man, Jesus Christ, learning from him. And they heard all of these things. They had such a great privilege to be his students. And Jesus hid nothing from them. In fact, he flatly told his disciples of the coming suffering of the Messiah. For many, including his own disciples, misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. Many in Jesus' day, including those in his own crew of of 12 men who followed him, assumed that the Messiah had come to set up his kingdom, that he had come to overthrow the Roman oppressors and reign. When Jesus was trying to share with his disciples that his death and resurrection was coming. And for the third time, right before this passage, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection to them. He tells them that there is, a, there is defeat, seeming defeat coming, but in that seeming defeat is ultimate victory. But they simply would not, or maybe could not, understand and fathom that. And so, still consumed with the idea that Jesus had come to set up his kingdom, James and John, if that's the basis you're working off of, that Jesus has come to set up a kingdom, he's the Messiah, you understand where this comes from. They want to make sure they have a part of that. Now, who are James and John? Well, we're told here in Mark chapter 10 that James and John are the sons of Zebedee, their brothers. Their mother's name is Salome. Now, what's interesting is if you go through the scriptures and you read the, the gospel accounts, 
by process of elimination and, and by, all, by, by, by harmonizing those accounts of the gospel, what you come up with is that more than likely, Salome, who is James and John's mother, is most likely the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which makes James and John cousins to Jesus, or at least half-cousins of the Messiah. These men were known as zealous men. They were passionate for their work of Christ. In fact, they were so zealous, Jesus gave them this name, nickname. He called them the Sons of Thunder. They were, they were passionate guys. However, what was often lacking in their passion, that though they were passionate for the kingdom of God, they lacked the love of God. You have to have both. It's, it, you have to temper your zeal for the Lord with a love for the Lord and, and others. And you, you, you have to also invigorate your love for God with a passion and a love for, and a passion and, and a zeal for his kingdom and who he is. In fact, we read this in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Okay, so stop right there. Here is Jesus going to Jerusalem and they go to the village in Samaria, and people don't want him to come. They're rejecting him. Okay? You got the picture? Now, here's the response. And when, his, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. These guys were pretty zealous. They were, they were passionate for Jesus. They were passionate for their teacher. So much so that it overrode the passion, overrode their compassion for other people. Can you imagine that response? Well, they didn't accept you. Would you like us just to rain fire down in that city for you? We can, we'll do that. But Jesus is trying to show them the love of God. And they also enjoyed a very special relationship with Jesus. They, along with Peter were a part of what's known as the inner circle, really, of, of Jesus' disciples. Peter and James and John had witnessed the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ in their experience in the Mount of Transfiguration. And so, informed by this and by their zeal, they come to Jesus one day with a request that's incredibly self-focused. And the disciples, time and again, had discussed, and I use the word discussed very generously, the idea of who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. And you know, we, won't, we don't have all the words recorded, but I can imagine they all thought they were going to be that guy. And they probably all had their reasons why they thought they would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But these two guys, they, they wish to be on top of everybody else. And so they do something different. They go right to the source. They go to the Messiah. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 20 the same interaction that happens. And we learn in Matthew chapter 20 that James and John bring their mom along with them as a kind of a mediator for this request. Um, I love Mark. Mark is very simple in a way that he's just direct and to the point. Mark just cuts right through all the other stuff and says, look, this is who, this is who really wanted this to happen. 
So they come to Jesus, and in verse 36, we see that they seek to set him up even before they ask a question. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, how many times have they observed other people try and fail to manipulate, manipulate Jesus, and yet they do it anyway? Jesus had rebuffed the greatest theological conundrums Israel had to offer from its biggest and brightest spiritual minds. Yet here they are, setting, trying to set up Jesus, looking for a positive answer. I, I read that, every time I read that verse, it's almost like the echo in my head of a little kid, you know. Daddy, if I ask you a question, will you say yes? No parent knows that what's coming next can be good, right? Or in line with what we're wanting to do. But it's interesting. How does Jesus respond? Does he call them out? Does he condemn them? No, he simply asks a question. Jesus so often responds to people with questions. Why? Because questions draw out the heart. Questions show us who we are. Accusations hardened the will. Jesus allows two of his closest followers to expose their own spiritual status. And they oblige. Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you? And they tell him. They say, we wish... That when the kingdom of heaven, when, when, when we have the kingdom of God, when you establish your kingdom, that we want the greatest positions of honor in the kingdom of God. We want to be seated on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus. The right and left hand of any sovereign in that day were high honors. These were the top two people in any kingdom under the king. And in a minute, we're going to break this apart and we're really going to dissect you know, their faith and, what was, and, and we're going to dissect what was going on in their heads and their hearts and what Jesus has to say about that. But can we just take a minute and commend James and John yet again for their faith? They have heard what Jesus has said. They have observed who Jesus is. I mean, they've heard him talk about even that, that he's going to die and, and rise again. They, they've heard the things that he's interacted with others about. And they are convinced that he's going to win. They are convinced that he is the Messiah. They are convinced that he is the promised one. And I think that's worth commending. That they believed in him. Now, unfortunately, they missed the purpose of his coming. And they wished to use his kingdom for their own exaltation. And that's what we have here Instead of continuing this debate with the other disciples of who is going to be the greatest, they just went to the one who can make it so. But they didn't do it out of love for Jesus. They did it out of love for themselves. They were consumed with their pride and the prestige that such a position would give them. And to this, Jesus speaks. And he gives them Really, I mean, what he shows them is this impossible standard that's set before them. Jesus says, do you not know what you ask? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
Jesus, knowing what is to come, tries to help James and John see that what they are asking for is more than exaltation because prior to exaltation must come humiliation. The prerequisite to glory is suffering. And Jesus knew the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew the price of sin that he had to pay. And he asked James and John if they could bear these things with him. He uses these phrases, to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized. And what, they, what the idea behind those statements, um, that when they were used, they were like idioms, Jewish idioms. They refer to fully experiencing something. What is it that Jesus is set to fully experience? It is the wrath of God on sin. That's the mission of the Messiah. Jesus had begun to drink the cup in his incarnation, but he knew the dregs of the cup were still to come. And Jesus would suffer for the sins of mankind. But with stars in their eyes, do these guys give any hesitation they can do this? Not at all, right? But they go on to say, in verse 39, they say to him, we are able. We can do that. Why? Why do they think that? Because to them, it's a path to what they want. If we say yes, we'll get what we want. They had no idea what they were asking. They had no idea what this entailed. If they did, they would understand more fully and grasp more, more completely the gravity of the situation that they were standing in. But their pride was clouding their view. What did they see before them? They saw only their idea of human greatness. That is the way that we need to go. What they did not realize is what they were actually asking for Jesus to do was to die. For they could not do what he was to do. Jesus isn't asking James and John to die for the sins of all mankind. That's what Jesus can only do. But he's asking for them to follow him with all they have. These were only mortal men. He was a sinless savior. But still, they would have, they would have what they believe They can handle. That's exactly what Jesus says. That's the ensured outcome. He goes on to tell them that they would indeed drink of the cup and be baptized with that baptism. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus can indeed assure them that they will drink the cup and be baptized in his sufferings, but he cannot grant their request for prestige. Why? Because rewards belong to God the Father. And this is an interesting part of what we see is what we, what we commonly refer to as the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the submission of Jesus the Son to God the Father. And the rewards belong to God the Father to give out. And the, there are rewards who are prepared for those who are faithful and those who live in a, in a way worthy of them. There is exaltation and greatness in the kingdom of God for those who follow him. But God alone is the one who gives those things out. And Jesus says that himself. And indeed, if we were to look ahead, James and John would suffer 
for the kingdom of God. You turn over to the book of Acts, and you find that James would be the first to pay the price in his martyrdom for the cause of Christ. No disciple, no apostle would would die before James. John would spend his life in persecution and would be exiled for his faith, and he would give himself to combating apostasy in the church. John would spend his life for the cause of Christ. The price of following Jesus is high. Jesus reiterated that time and again. It is not a life of ease. It is not a life of self. It is a life given to him. And this request leads into Jesus' lesson on greatness for his disciples. For greatness in God's kingdom is available to all who know him as Savior, but it must be achieved in the manner which God prescribes. And that's where you see the great paradox of this passage in verses 41 through 45. And predictably, verse 41 tells us, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. There's a lot of discord among the disciples. It doesn't take long for for word to get out of what James and John have done. I I wonder how that went. They see them and their mom talking to Jesus and all this going on, and when they get back, it's like 20 questions, right? What's going on? What were you talking about? What are you, and, it, and the whole story comes out. And the rest of the disciples do not take too kindly to what has taken place. They were greatly displeased. That, those, that, that phrase the, from the Greek means indignant, angry, and incensed at what they have done. And let me assure you something. The disciples were not angry and incensed and greatly displeased with righteous indignation. No, why were they upset? Yeah, because they got beat to the punch, right? If we had only thought of that first, we could have been the ones asking the question. No, their their pride is wounded. They are mad at themselves as much as they are at James and John. And with this disquiet and this discord rippling through the disciples, Jesus takes this teaching opportunity to reiterate to them that there is a way to be great in God's kingdom, and that way isn't found in their own pride and in their own wisdom. And he, he begins by illustrating there's, there's two different types of greatness. First, you have worldly greatness. Jesus calls his disciples together for this personal instruction. And again, I, what love and what patience from Jesus. I mean, how many of us, if let's be honest, we'd just be done with this foolishness, Right? We just say, you know what, class dismissed, go home, go fish, go do whatever it is you want to do, I'm done, right? Yet Jesus continues to lovingly instruct instruct these men. But this is what Jesus, this is what God through his word does for us so many times as well. For how many times do we fail in the same way? How many times do we fall flat on our face time after time after time? How many times does God have to convict us of a specific sin before we finally get it through our thick heads, right? But he continues to patiently mold us to be like him. And Jesus begins here 
pointing out the common thinking on greatness. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Rulers in the world system are defined by how many people are under them. And, and again, let's think in, think in historical context. Who is that or what group of people is that going to conjure up in the mind of the disciples? Well, it's going to conjure up, first and foremost, the Romans, the occupying force of Israel and those who would lord it over them. Positions of leadership and authority are often wielded like a club by the world. That was true in Jesus' day, and it is just as true in our world today. Leaders aren't truly leaders unless they have inner drive, ambition, and they seek greatness by self-promotion. From the office life to the sports arena, from the factory floor to the political stage, this is the expected way of life. Earn your way to the top and enjoy what you've accumulated for yourself and do whatever it takes to stay on top and stay in charge. And make sure those under you serve your needs and fill your coffers. And that can be two different ways. Whether they fill your coffers physically by lining your pockets or metaphorically by feeding your pride and your ego and your self-satisfaction. And maybe that's where it comes into our lives more often than not. We think, well, I would never exploit someone else for money, but... How many of us exploit other people to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? The exploitation of those beneath you is the norm for the world standard of greatness. And you and I, we can chase that if we want. We can go after that. We can look for those that we are better than. We can climb all the social ladders in our reach. We can tie our hopes and dreams and our value to this type of greatness, but this will not gain anyone true and lasting greatness. It'll be gone one day. You will die or this world will end. But there is a better way. There is something that actually matters. And we can use all that we have in everything that God has given us to do something for him. We can use all of our temporal opportunities to make an eternal difference. And Jesus says that there is greatness that matters, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. Jesus informs his disciples that to be true disciples of him, the world's greatness cannot be found among them. And, and let's, let's hasten to point out here that Jesus does not condemn wanting to be great in the kingdom of God. In fact, we are told that there are rewards for those who do, who, who do live in a way that honors God. We, we look at the Apostle Paul and the things that he said about how he's fought a good fight and he's run a good race and there is a crown laid up for him in heaven. We, we read about how, how believers are rewarded for things that they do in this life. 
It's an admirable thing. It is a thing that we should strive to be is great for the kingdom of God, but it cannot be found in man's way of doing things, but in God's. And the way of greatness or the way to greatness isn't by exploiting those who are under you. Instead, Jesus says it is through selfless, submissive service. And Jesus calls on them to truly serve and uses two words to highlight this. And the first one you have there translated as servant. To truly be great, you must be one who performs service to others. This Greek word here is the word diakonos. And it refers to those who waited on tables. Now, does that word, diakonos, does that sound familiar to something you know in our church vernacular? That's where we get the word for deacon. That's literally where that comes from. A servant is one who voluntarily offers service to others. It is a conscious choice to give up himself and his needs To meet the needs of another. So if you're going to be great in God's kingdom, you must be a servant. You must willingly serve other people. And then Jesus goes on to say that the the one who is to be first in God's kingdom is the slave of all. This word slave is the word doulos. And it means one who belongs to another. It is one who has no rights of his own, for he serves any and all others. And this is what it takes to be great in God's eyes. This is the life of one who has been redeemed by the power of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not declared through the world's definition of greatness. You know why? Because the one who is the gospel did not declare it this way. Jesus continues in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came not as the mighty conquering king, but as a humble servant. He did not come to be served but to serve. Now make no mistake, Jesus is king, but he came to show us the ways of God. He came to restore fallen man, and he did that through his service. If you examine the Gospels, you find that Jesus' life and ministry are spent in service to all around him. You don't have to read very far before you come time after time after time of Jesus serving other people. Jesus giving of himself, Jesus giving of his time, even in times when he and his disciples sought to take time away from those things, yet he continued to give of himself for those who wanted to spend time with him. But his service would not end there. Jesus, again, talks about how he would give his life in the ultimate act of service to do what? To pay the ransom for us. This word for ransom is only found here and in Matthew 20, the parallel passage to this one. And it carries the idea of the price of release of a slave or captive from their bondage. Jesus, in his greatest act of service, would give his life as the ransom, as the price of release, 
in substitution to pay for the sins of mankind. Because sin is a cruel master and exacts a high price. And all those who come to him find that to be true. Jesus says here, when he says to give his life a ransom for many, that word for means instead of. And it conveys the idea of substitutionary, the the substitutionary death that Jesus had yet to come at the end of his ministry. And Jesus would go to the cross and he would pay the price. He would, he, would have, he would perform the act, the ultimate act of service to, to anyone who comes to him as Savior. For all mankind, he paid the price. But he did so willingly. John 10, 18, no one, we talked about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. The sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of mankind was made by his willing submission to God the Father's plan. And for that, Jesus was vindicated and he will reign for all of eternity. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, And given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the hymn of praise that Paul gives in the middle of this letter to the Philippians to reiterate to us exactly what Christ did for us. Jesus asks nothing of his servants that he is not willing to do himself. And more. D. Edmund Hebert wrote a commentary on the um, book of Mark, and this is the statement that I found this week that was so striking when considering these. The subjects of the kingdom must submit to the life of a slave, but the king submits to the death of a slave. The higher the position, the greater the sacrifice. And Jesus asks for us in return to live lives submitted to him. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has served all and offers salvation to all. The greatness of the kingdom is found in serving others. And all Christians are called to this. And so tonight, if you sit here and you, you know, you say, I'm, I'm a child of God, I have, I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus is calling you to do. He's not calling you to coast through life. He's not calling you to sit back. He's not calling you to live for greatness as defined by your own self in the world we live in. He's calling you to be great in the kingdom of God. He's calling you to serve other people. 
So pastors, serve your churches. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Parents, serve your children. Children, serve your parents. Serve your friends and your relatives and your neighbors and your co-workers and your enemies. Serve. Because in serving them, you serve the Lord, which exalts him and his kingdom. And this is the way to true, lasting, and effective greatness. This is the way to declaring the gospel. The path to true, lasting greatness in God's kingdom is paved through the selfless service of others for the glory of God. The disciples looked around in the day and age they lived in, and they looked at those who were exalted in their day. They saw the Roman rulers. They saw the religious leaders of their own country. And they saw that power and that prestige that came through making others subservient to themselves. And so what did they do? They sought to model their own lives after that. But the man that they walked with, who was more than a man, showed them a better way. He showed them the way of God. He showed them a way that rejected the pride of men and embraced the humility of God. He showed them the way of the cross. He showed them the way of the King of Kings. Greatness isn't defined by how many serve us, but by how many we serve. And because of Jesus Christ, we can serve him by serving others. And he has shown us the way. And tonight, we remember and we proclaim the message of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. The message of Mark chapter 10, that Jesus Christ would give his life a ransom for many, is exactly what we proclaim tonight.